Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It can be found in the Bible and the rack in front of you on page 810. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Is it no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the the word word of our our God God will stand stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help as we open up your word. We pray that you would lead us by your spirit. And I pray that I would decrease, you must increase, cause Christ to increase in all of our hearts and lives now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us, let me go ahead and extend a word of welcome. It was a little chaotic as we were doing announcements, so if you have not been welcomed, welcome. Good to see you here. Um, If it's your uh, first time here or if last week was your first time and you came back, uh, we're in a bit of a transition in terms of what we're going through in the Word. So we just finished up Ephesians. And our senior pastor, Ryan Adams, is going to be uh, kicking off First Samuel in two weeks. In two weeks. So we've got a few one-off sermons uh, as we uh, transition. And so if you hear last week for Kyle and now you hear me and you're like, I'm not coming back, just come back. Okay, Ryan's coming again, I promise. Uh, I get to be in the uh, great position of sitting in the bullpen, eating sunflower seeds, just kind of waiting on the signal. So... And uh, got pulled out this week. So excited about that. Uh, If you remember here and have been paying attention, uh, if you actually receive and read your emails, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that. If you are a member and you don't receive emails, you need to correct that. Uh, So reach out to the church office about that. Uh, But if you're paying attention and you know things are about to ramp up around here, it's about to get busy. Summer break is over, even if the heat is not. And it's time to get back at it. Uh, in light of that reality, okay, so this is for members, guests, you kind of just get to listen in and go, what's going on around here? And then how does the word inform that? But for members, here's, I want you to ask yourself a question. Why do we do it? Okay, why do we do all that we do as a church? For PBC specifically, why core training at 9 a.m. before this gathering when that gets started back? Why this gathering? Why what we call midweek, okay, that happens on Wednesday nights. Why now home groups, home groups, right? Why now home groups? Uh, why do we do all of this stuff as a church? Is there a purpose? Do we have a purpose in participating in all of that? For those of you that serve and make it happen, is there a purpose in doing that? What's the why behind all of it? Well, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. Uh, a lot of different ways that you could answer it would be right. Uh, you would probably have some wrong answers as well, but there's no one way to answer it. 
Though I will give an ultimate answer in just a moment, and you, you might already have it in the back of your mind what the ultimate answer is, but there's a variety of answers to that question. I want to put forward one answer today that I want to play off of, and I'll put it like this. Anytime we focus internally, a lot of programs I just mentioned, those are internal things, okay? Anytime we focus internally on building up and strengthening and caring for and training the church, anytime we focus internally, we don't do so simply for our sake. We also do it for the sake of those that currently reside outside of the church. And not simply outside of these walls that we're now sitting in, but outside of the faith as well. Okay, to simplify it, we focus in part on internal health for the sake of external good. Okay, we focus in part on internal health for the sake of external good. The reality is the church has a purpose. It has a mission, as you can put it. And that mission involves having an impact beyond the walls that we gather in and the people that currently sit within these walls. In reality, everyone has an impact in some way, Christian or non-Christian alike. It's not just Christians who have an impact on the world. Everybody has some level of impact on the world. So our question is, what is ours? There was a 19th century philanthropist and activist. Here's how he put it in terms of just talking about everybody having an impact. He said, no human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness, not only of the present, but every subsequent age of humanity. No one can detach himself from this connection. There is no sequestered spot in the universe, no dark niche along the disk of non-existence to which he can retreat from his relations to others, where he can withdraw the influence of his existence upon the moral destiny of the world. Everywhere, his presence, a person's presence or absence will be felt. Everywhere, he will have companions who will be better or worse because of him. Basically, everybody's going to have either a positive or negative impact on the world. So what does it look like for the follower of Jesus? Well, unquestionably for us, for followers of Jesus, you're supposed to have a positive, somewhat transformative impact on the world. So the the question really isn't, should Christians do good in the world, if we put it that way? It's, what does it look like? How do they do it? How does it play itself out? The question is more about the how than anything else. But both the how and the why are actually addressed in the text before us that you've heard read, that you've heard prayed, okay? you've heard sung in different ways. So Matthew 5, 13 through 16, part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So if you've got one of the Bibles that has red letters in it, you see a lot of red letters around this. It's because this is Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. And the section we're focusing on today flows right out of what's known as the Beatitudes. So you could probably just look up in your Bible and see that or look on the page uh, next to it. And if you may not even be familiar with the Beatitudes, may have never even heard that language before, but you've probably heard some of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and are merciful and peacemakers. Jesus even goes so far to say, blessed are the persecuted common language we hear uh, just as we walk through life. In so many ways, Jesus lays out this somewhat strange, very counter-cultural attitude that is to typify his followers. That's the Beatitudes. And flowing from this counter-cultural Christ-following character description, we get the verses before us today, 13 through 16. 
which you could put it this way. If the Beatitudes are about character, then the verses before us are about influence. Kingdom citizens or Christians exhibit a certain character, but they do so in a certain space on earth, to put it generally, and they do it for a purpose. That's how the text today sort of connects in its context in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to hit on the Beatitudes, but I just want you to know there's a connection here. There's stuff around this text that informs it. Okay, Jesus is moving from character to influence, from attitude to application. I want us to see that what he has to what he has to say and what it means for our lives. So we, we kind of have to It'd be helpful to know all the Beatitudes, but it's OK that we don't. But what does all of that mean for our lives and for uh, the church? And if you've been around the church any time, then the text before us today is probably really familiar to you. And honestly, very straightforward. I think people confuse it at times. Some, some people try to overcomplicate verses 13 uh, through 16. Hopefully I won't do that, but we'll find out. Uh, when we get to the end. So uh, here's how we're going to approach it. Three main sections for the rest of our time together. Uh, if you are a member here, Ryan gives you that nice little note packet. Sorry. OK, you're just getting a couple week break from that. Did Kyle do it last week? Yes. All right. So I'm not the only one. All right. Three main sections for the rest of our time. We'll look at three biblical certainties and I'll give you the roadmap and then we'll go and it'll it'll be on the screens. Look at that. Uh, and then we'll we'll follow that by two textual implications and finish with three practical exhortations. Those are eight points if you're counting. And I may have a little add on at the end. We'll kind of see where the road goes when we get to the end. All right. See if we have more time. All right. Let's look first at three biblical certainties. And uh, by the way, that little uh, guide has a note section on the back that you can flip that over and take notes if you'd like. Uh, so the, the, the text for us is mainly about us being salt and light. That's the obvious focus of the text. But I want to make sure that we see what's going on in the background. Okay, there, there's some truths operating in the background. Some of them are right on the surface, but there's a lot going on in the background that informs this text that we need to understand what's in the background so that we understand properly what it means to be salt and light. So first, first biblical certainty or truth, the world is decaying and dark. And it's operating in the background here. There's a distinction being drawn between Christians and the world. Okay, the text says that Christians are something because the world is something. And the text is implying something that is stated very specifically elsewhere in Scripture, that the world is both decaying and the world is dark. This dark part's made evident throughout Scripture. John 1 talks about the Word, which is Jesus, shines light into the darkness. John 3 talks about how people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light. Acts 26, Paul, looking back on his conversion, Jesus says something to Paul. He says he's sending Paul so that people may turn from darkness, from the power of Satan. You can just keep going over and over. You have darkness associated with evil. We are said as human beings to be walking in darkness apart from Jesus. That's our existence without Christ. You don't need light if you don't have dark. So the text doesn't specifically have to mention the darkness of the world. It's implied in the need for light. Same thing with the earth decaying. This is implied through the need for salt. To jump ahead a bit, one of the primary functions of salt in that day was as a preservative from decay. Therefore, the implication is the earth is decaying. Salt is needed 
because there is decay, just like light is needed because there is darkness. This is sort of the presupposition behind the text. The world is decaying and the world is dark. Goes against a lot of worldviews. Enlightenment thinkers used to to say that uh, the world will only get better. Okay, education, eventually technology would only better society. And it's not as if it hasn't, but the assumption was it would be a continual upward trajectory, always improving that eventually things like wars would cease. Well, we may be more educated and there may be more access to education and we may have some great technology, but it hasn't fixed the human problem and it hasn't fixed a broken creation that groans, as the Bible says. Think about it. This is sort of back in the news. Thanks to Hollywood, we create things like the ability to harness nuclear power, but then make bombs out of it to kill people. We create devices that give us access to almost anything, but we end up more stressed and more depressed and less connected. If you took a quick survey of world events, would you conclude that things are getting better? The biblical reality is there's decay. And there's darkness. G. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He said, Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption and disintegration of life at every point. He saw its spoilation. And because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing they needed most was salt in order that the corruption would be arrested. He saw them wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amidst fogs and mists. And he knew that they needed above everything else light. So first, somewhat gloomy reality, the first certainty is the world is decaying and dark. Next, okay, there's good news. There's always good news. Next certainty, Jesus is the light of the world. Okay, Jesus is the light of the world. This is one of, that's not obvious uh, immediately in the text, but it's made very obvious in the rest of the New Testament. John eight twelve seems to contradict this text because there it says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Which I don't know about you, if you're paying attention, begs the question, is Jesus the light or are we the light? Because what does our text say? Did you notice? Who's the light in the text? We are. No, it says we are the light of the world. Okay. I don't know who said Jesus. That's a Sunday school answer, but I heard it. Okay. All right. It's, you are the light of the world. Verse 14, John eight twelve. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Which one is it? Both. Okay, it's both, but one before the other, or better said, one because of the other. This is the main reason that I wanted to have this point here. We are light because of Jesus, because he's light. Ephesians 5, 8 just clears it up for us. The Bible interprets the Bible, okay? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So make sure we get this very simple point, but got to get it. Non-Christians can do and have done and will continue to do a lot of good in the world. Okay, you don't have to look at go, how do non-Christians do good things? That seems like a really good thing, but they don't know Christ. They actually hate Christ, but they're doing good in the world. So non-Christians have done that, will continue to do that, but only Christians are the light of the world. You might put it this way, because Christians are lit by Jesus. They're the only ones that are the light of the world. Okay, we're going to get into what light means, but for now, you just need to know this. We are not light apart from Jesus. 
Apart from Jesus, people can have an impact, but not an eternal impact, not a biblical impact, if that helps. Apart from Jesus, people can have an impact, but not an eternal impact. So, so just pause, press the pause button right there. Again, go a little further and make sure we're clear here. If it's not clear based on how this text flows out of the Beatitudes, this is only speaking of the influence that Christians have on the world. Because Christ came, because Christ lived, because Christ died, because Christ rose, and because Christians trust that, they are, we are the light of the world. If you don't believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose according to Scripture, if you don't believe that he did that for you, if you don't think you even need that, then you are not light in a dark world. You, you can impact the world, yes, but you can't eternally impact souls. Your impact will only last so long. Jesus, Christians are light because Jesus is the light. Christians are light through Jesus because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. To use a popular illustration, Jesus is the sun, we are the moon, and the earth is, well, the earth. Okay, it's the world. Okay, kids, does the moon, does the moon radiate light? Does it like give off its own light? No. What does it do? It reflects the what? The sun. Okay, but that's us. We reflect the light of Jesus to the world. And Christians are also salt because of Jesus. But the Bible does not say, I could not find the verse, Jesus is the salt of the earth. That doesn't exist. But it does say that Jesus came to save, to rescue. He came to reverse the curse of the fall. We sing it every year. Christmas is coming up. Some of you will start celebrating it in about a month. But we sing this every year. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Reversing the decay. Just as we are light because of Jesus, we are also salt because of Jesus. We derive these characteristics as light and salt from him. And we've got to be clear on that. We need to be clear on this as well. This is not become salt and light and you get Jesus. This is you are salt and light because you have Jesus. This is not an earn Jesus text. Okay, It's not an earn salvation text. This is what Jesus' followers are. Okay, So don't, don't get it backwards. Don't walk away going, well, now he's told me all we have to be to earn Jesus. No. Telling you everything you are because Jesus has you already. All right, that's key. Final biblical certainty. The world is decaying and dark. Jesus is the light of the world. And finally, everything exists for God's glory. Everything exists for God's glory. There's that ultimate answer. The why. Why do we do all this? There's the ultimate answer I hinted at earlier. Um, not sure if you've ever surveyed scripture on this point. If you have it, do that. If you're a Christian, you've never surveyed scripture on the point that everything exists for God's glory. You need to do that. All things exist and are being worked according to his purpose and his pleasure and his plan. God creates, God calls, God rescues, God redeems, God saves, God restores, God judges, God destroys, God restrains to the end that he might be praised. God lives to make much of God. His mission is his glory. Period. J.I. Packer said the only answer that the Bible gives to any question that begins with why did God? The only answer is for his own glory. 
make sure that anytime we see this in a text that it's highlighted. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that it may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We haven't even talked about what it means to be salt and light, but this text is connecting this stuff with good works, connects light and good works together. But then it makes the motivation clear, okay? The connection between light and good works, it makes the motivation for those good works very clear. Do we do it for our own reputation? Do we do it so that the world would appreciate us and give us a high five and a pat on the back? Do we do it for some sort of status? Do we even do it for numbers? Do we do it for anything other than His glory? This text would say it's for His fame. We are salt and light for the fame of God's name. Jesus makes us light, tells us to shine, but says do so for the sake of God. Think about it. Jesus came to glorify the Father. And Jesus is the one that makes us light. Therefore, we shine for God's sake, not our own. All right. With that, let's turn to our next section. Okay, Three certainties in tow. Let's bring those with us. Let's turn and look at two textual implications. The text says very plainly, salt and light, those are more indicative than imperative, meaning they are more statements about what we are than what we become or what we do. We are salt. We are light. already mentioned this. Those are not the implications. Those are just what the text says. But I think there are two major implications flowing from those truths that we are salt and light. Here it is. Jesus is telling his disciples that they are to be distinct But at the same time, engaged, okay, distinct from the world, yet engaged in the world. We don't often hold those in balance very well. We're overly distinct without being engaged and we're engaged without being distinct. But these are realities that have to be held in tension. I won't say balance. That's not a good word. Tension. Okay, they have to be held in tension. Let's tackle them one at a time. First, we're to be distinct from the world, distinct from the world. So. So much of the text draws out this distinction. And we've hit on this already briefly. But the text implies that the world, it's not a pretty picture, is like rotting meat. And we are the world's salt. And the world is like a dark night. And we are the world's light. Maybe think about it this way. If there's no distinction between us and the world, then what's the point? Why would the church exist? We'd be a pointless organization in a sense. We have no real use because we have nothing to offer. But that's not the case. I said earlier, this text flows out of those countercultural kingdom characteristics that we know as the Beatitudes. It's hard not to see the distinction between that, those characteristics and the standards of the world. The distinction part is really highlighted by this warning In the midst of the text, verse 13 says that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, people have gone to great lengths to try and unpack that. They want to argue that because of the chemical composition of salt, that it really can't technically lose its taste. Therefore, Jesus was mistaken and wrong and the whole faith falls apart. Well, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. And that's missing the aim of what he's saying and going way too far. Most people point out that 
the fact that salt lacked purity in that day in terms of how they got it. It could be mixed. It could end up mixed with so many things that it was practically useless. And therefore, just toss it out in the street because it's got so much else in it that it's no good anymore. And that gets at Jesus's point. That if you aren't distinct from the world, then you are basically useless to the world. That if there's too much of the world mixed in you, then you are of no good use to it. Think about it. You cannot influence what you are exactly alike. And you cannot change something you are identical to. In order to affect change, our lives have to be different. Our homes have to be different. Our relationships different. Our work ethic, our speech, and so on and so forth. And to be clear, the warning here is not in regards to salvation. It's in regards to influence. This is not really a salvation text. This is not about eternal security. Rather, this refers to the world's response to Christians if they don't function like believers. We can relinquish our distinction from the world. If we relinquish our distinction from the world, if we fail to live as Christians without distinction, then we basically become worthless agents of change. You might say the world, the more the, the more the world is in us, the less of us there is to help the world. The more the world is in us, the less of us there is to help the world. The world does not need the church to look like it. The world needs the church to look more like Jesus. This is why Jesus starts with character before he talks about influence, because character drives influence. The stats actually prove this out in our context. The church in the West is struggling as a whole, but the more mainline liberal churches are declining at a much steeper rate. The church that is embracing the world's standards and leaning into the world's standards and celebrating the world's standards are the ones experiencing the dramatically deep decline. You know why? Because they're useless. What good is it? Like, go do something else. Distinction is loss. What's the point? Next implication. We are not only distinct from the world, we are to be engaged in the world. So the world is like rotting meat. We're the world's salt. The world is like a dark night. We're the world's light. So like salt preserves meat from decay, Christians are to work against decay, against social decay. Just like light overcomes darkness, Christians are to illumine society and show a better way. We don't simply just sit around trying to focus on how to maintain our lightness. I don't don't think that's our, our saltiness or remaining bright. We'll put it that way. We don't just sit around and go, okay, how can we remain salty and remain a bright light? That's survival. This is about influence. Salt has to be rubbed in and poured on. The lamp has to be put on a stand so that it gives light to the environment around it. Consider this. Jesus doesn't just come on the scene and call his disciples and set them apart from everybody else. He does what as well? He sends them. He sets them apart and sends them. Here's how Martin Luther, the reformer, put it. He said, Luther or Luther said a Christian doesn't reach maturity until he reenters the world and embraces the world again, not in its worldliness and its ungodly patterns, but as the theater and the arena of God's redemption. That's what Jesus did. He went into the world in order to save the world. The world is the world that God has committed himself to renew and redeem. And we are to participate in that with him. 
Think about both the action of salt and light. So when it comes to salt, we preserve from decay. We hinder or stop or work against the moral decay of this world. We are in so many ways a deterrent to the moral deterioration of the world. You put it negatively, we work to deter sin. But then positively, we we are agents through which Christ shines. We show a better way. We light the path. We speak and uphold and what is true and what is good. This has been the influence of the church throughout history. Church takes its lumps. Okay, We are often, particularly in our day, recognized for what we haven't done, for the scars that we have. People want to look at the church and knock the church for either promoting or being silent when it came to something like slavery. And there's certainly truth there, a lot of truth there. But what's also missed in that conversation is how instrumental instrumental Christianity was in eradicating slavery in Rome to start with, in the UK and in the US. On top of that, the church has battled throughout history against infanticide and for the overall good of the most vulnerable. Christians have throughout history been known for organizing resources to care for the sick. How many hospitals have been built in the name of Christ by Christians? What about higher education? Okay, look back in the history of some of the most prestigious schools that now exist. You know who started them? Christians did. The list goes on and on. Fighting for women's rights, producing great works of literature or music or establishing modern science. We may be seen as intolerant or in the wrong side of history to use the lingo now. But Christianity has profoundly shaped the history we now live in. But it doesn't happen without distinct engagement to stay connected with the last implication If you want something to maybe hang in your memory, we are to live beatitude-driven lives in the midst of a decaying world. We live beatitude-driven lives in the midst of a decaying world. We are distinct, but we are engaged. You know, salt, I'm assuming that there's a consensus here on this. Salt makes things taste better. There's so many foods that are better with salt. I love eggs. Cook a lot of eggs in my house. Every now and then you forget the salt. It's like you're eating something totally different than if you put salt on it. Salt makes a dramatic difference. But what do you have to do with the salt? Use it. You got to shake it out on the food. The clear reality is here. It's useless if it remains in the shaker. No good if it's not dispensed. John Stott played off this. He said, God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt shakers. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it from going bad. In terms of light, it says you you don't light a lamp and cover it up. You set it out. You set it out and it gives light. What good is a covered lamp? It's meant to illumine the world, to reveal, to show the way. If we retreat into our churches, into our homes, into our circles, to the neglect of the world, then we're 
We're being disobedient. We're, we're missing the very purpose for which God created us. At the same time, if we march into the world acting just like the world, then we do nothing but further condemn the world. We do it no good. There's a tension here. Maybe you're starting to connect all the internal stuff that we do here. And you start to see how something like core training and midweek and home groups in this gathering, how they promote and aid in us being distinct, but they do so for the sake of us being engaged. All right. Final section, get a tad bit more practical. Final section, we looked at three biblical certainties, two textual implications. Let's close with three practical exhortations, three practical exhortations. And I want to focus on the engagement part, but I'm not going to get real specific. Okay, I'm going to talk about three spheres of engagement, what I like to call three levels of mission and kind of turn them into exhortations. So I'm leaving you and uh, later sermons and talks to flesh out some of the specifics about how you may apply these things. But here are three spheres in which you need to figure out how to apply this stuff. Now, b- before I give them to you, there is one very important qualification because you won't hear this a lot. In all of these spheres, with all of these exhortations, proclamation is essential. Proclamation is essential. We engage the world in both word and deed. Okay, word and deed. We do good works and we speak true words. Every opportunity that that we have as we go out into the world to do good may not present us the ability or the opportunity to uh, to give a full gospel presentation and call someone to faith. But there is nothing that we do that should be completely absent of truth in every way. We are, as Christians, we're light, we're salt, we're also heralds. Okay, We're ambassadors for Christ. All of those things can be true. We're messengers, okay? You cannot impact the world apart from this word. So that that's a key part of it. I want you to, I'd hate for you to walk away thinking somehow a proponent of world engagement that's absent of gospel proclamation. You can't accomplish the type of good we're talking about here without speaking truth. So that's key. With that in mind, number one, first practical exhortation or sphere of application. First, seek personal good. Seek personal good. And that sounds like, well, okay, focus on me. No. Um, Listen, each one of us has an area of influence in the world that the rest of us probably doesn't. Okay, we don't do anything alone, meaning if you're a part of a faith family, you have support. You always have support. Lean into that support. But as an example, I don't I don't think this is true that some of you are going to go back to work tomorrow and Pastor Ryan's not going to be there. And he won't be there Tuesday and he won't be there Wednesday and he won't be there Thursday at your office. And he's probably not going to meet you at the gym. Kids, you're about to start school back. Okay, sorry, that's about to happen, but that's coming. Happens every year. Pastor David is not going to be at Cahaba Heights Elementary every day. There are spheres of influence where we rub shoulders with the world that nobody else does. Is where we have to ask the question, how do I distinctly engage this world for its good within the spheres of influence the Lord has given me? Where he has placed me specifically. This would include your neighborhood. Your workplace, the youth ball field, soccer field, school, gym, where you shop, where you dine, where you take music lessons. Just continue to add to the list there. I don't know every way in which you rub shoulders with the world, but you do. 
In those areas, what does it look like to deter decay and promote good, to do good works? Think about the workplace. Christians should look for ways to bring out the best in the company in which they work. Kids, youth at school, how how does your life positively affect your classmates and your class? Those are the type questions that we should be asking. I'll, I'll give you what I always think is a somewhat humorous uh, example from my own life. So if you're unaware, I'm in construction management full time. Uh, this one has happened over time in, in different ways just because people knew I was a pastor. OK, I just walk into a room and suddenly the conversation would shift. The language would change. They would even acknowledge at times, oh, the pastor's in the room, meaning clean up the behavior or the conversation or whatever was being told in an indirect way. I was deterring the conversation from further decay just by walking in the room. Now, some people do that and they don't have a clue what I'm like. But it does beg the question, do you live, do we live in such a distinct way that it changes the conversation when we're around? If people just have some idea of what we're like, does it change the conversation when we show up? You can actually be proud when your presence has that sort of effect. When they see Christ in you like that, that it sort of alters their behavior like that. That's an amen. Yes. Yes. They see something in me. I'm deterring decay in some way. And then you can speak into that. Now, qualification. Just before saying these things, Jesus says you can be blessed for being persecuted. So we don't welcome persecution, but we do acknowledge the reality and shouldn't be surprised by it. Being salt and light will at times being met with opposition I'd love to tell you, if you go do good, shine light, the world will change for good and everybody will love you. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee of that. And that would deny so much of what Christ has said elsewhere. So first, seek personal good. By the way, I wish I had time to tease this out. That that phrase, good works there in verse 16, actually be better translated, beautiful works. It's the quality of the work that's being highlighted. You have the chance to do beautiful things in the world that will glorify God. So maybe chase that down later. Next uh, level, next arena or sphere, next practical exhortation, pursue local change. Pursue local change. So this is stepping outside of your personal sphere of influence and engaging locally in the city. Certainly overlap with what you do personally, but this is taking it a little bit more corporate. Okay, this is taking engagement to a more corporate level. God didn't make a mistake by placing us in Cahaba Heights in the midst of Estavia, in the midst of the greater Birmingham area. This is the where the questions move uh, more from you to we. Okay, but we do acknowledge there's a whole lot of you's involved in the we. So but we're moving now to what do we do? What is how do we influence Those around us. This is not language I came up with, but I love to use it. I like to say that mission, particularly local and global mission, they're like a regulated free market in the church. The only thing holding you back from engaging is you. Nobody else is. Okay. Everyone should feel the freedom to go and do. However, as a church, particularly as elders, we want to regulate that. We want to know what you are doing. 
Help evaluate it. Is it healthy? Maybe discuss some potential equipping along the way. See if others can get involved. See if it rises to the level of full church engagement. See if it's something you need to stop doing and then tell you don't do that anymore because it's unhealthy. So basically, go and do. Be salt and light in the city, but be transparent enough and be humble enough to be told it's a bad idea and to receive that. We have local partners we try and promote and support for this reason. Again, go back to those emails that you may or may not be getting and you may or may not be reading. If you've been reading them, you see announcements about friendship partners and supporting Restoration Academy and Lifeline. Okay, go run. Okay, run to change the world. Those are avenues to pursue local change. There's a tub sitting out in the lobby collecting school supplies for Restoration Academy. How's that a layup? There's a layup. Okay, that, that is a soft toss to apply this sermon. There's a tub in the lobby. It'll be there next week. Ah, bring it anyways. Okay, just because that ruins the point of application. Since it's not, should have checked first. There we go. We'll leave it out. Uh, so it, I'm sure they'll take more supplies. You know, this is where I'm not the most pastoral pastor, if that makes sense. Those that know me well, amen that. So I'm just going to lean into my shortcoming uh, for just a moment. And PVC members, fill the tub up. Like, fill it up over and over again. Make Restoration Academy turn us away. There is no reason... That something like Restoration Academy, again, I'm, I'm assuming you know anything about it. If you don't, it's great. Let's learn about it later. I don't have time right now. There's no reason they should even have to ask. We should be beating down their door. Nobody, I don't think anybody in this room, I'll just say this because I don't know that. That would, that would be a false statement. Collectively, we are not struggling to the extent that we cannot make sure those kids have a, an abundance of supplies. That they have every single thing that our kids have when they're about to go back to school. Like fill the tub and fill it again. All right. And then ask us where the tub is. OK, because it may not be there next week. All right. How's that for being pastoral? Like, Do it now. He's more gracious. So it's so a balancing act. All right. Last exhortation, last fear of influence. Desire global impact. Desire global impact. Verse 14 says we're the light of the world, not just of our neighborhoods or cities. Okay, we're the light of the world. All right. You get near the end of Jesus's ministry. So he's on a hill giving this sermon. When he says this, he gets to the end of his ministry, goes up on another hill and he gives another speech, he gives another sermon. He says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all. Can you fill in the blank? Let's try that one more time. Okay. Like a little participation. You're getting sleepy. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all. Nations, right? Not geopolitical nations, tribes. He, Ryan prayed it earlier. Tribes, people groups, tongues, languages. If you take military terms and apply it here, our, uh, and apply it here, our commander has made clear the scope of our mission, and it extends well beyond Pump House Road. It extends to Central Asia and the Horn of Africa and Papua New Guinea. Every single member of this church should pursue and desire. We should collectively pursue and desire that the church be strengthened where it exists and the church be planted where it currently does not. And along the way, we should pursue and desire the most vulnerable to be cared for. This is why we partner with the Hilmers and the shepherds who work with Central 
Central Asian Muslim people groups. Okay, why they work to strengthen existing churches and see new churches planted among the unreached. It's why we do the same in Papua New Guinea with the systems. It's why we partner with Lifeline and King Jesus Church in Uganda so that the church is strengthened and deaf and blind kids are cared for. Leaving a lot of specifics to be worked out. Hope, hopefully I'm not getting too specific here. A lot of specifics to be worked out by you and then through the opportunities that arise in this church. But let me, let me give, here, here's the added, here's the bonus material of the sermon. I'm going to take the time that I don't really have. Okay, so um, let me help you with some sub exhortations. How about that? We got sub exhortations. Nothing revolutionary here. Bonus points. Um, not going to be on the screen, but I feel confident you can remember them. If you've been around the church for any time, this should not shock you. These are, this is blocking and tackling of missions. So three movements or three actions when it comes to design global impact. Pray, give, and go. Anybody ever heard those before? I didn't come up with that. Okay, it's been around for a while. Pray, give, and go. There's a member here is a good friend of mine who hates those signs in your house that have the three words on it, like live, laugh, love. Like, get this sign made. Like, pray, give, go. We'll hang it out there in the lobby. It'll aggravate that member, but it'll be great for the rest of us. Pray desperately for God to shine light among the nations. I think, I think Ryan referenced this quote uh, during Ephesians, but Piper talks about prayer being the, wa- uh, the, the wartime walkie-talkie. Okay? We're calling in resources to the front lines. I was in a meeting this morning, saw the schedule for, for the kids coming up and all the, the prayer focuses throughout the year and how they're going to be praying for the nations, how they're going to be praying for workers among the nation's kids. Here's what's happening when you pray in your classrooms. You're picking up the walkie-talkie and you're asking God to lob light grenades at darkness. Just knocking down walls every time you do that. Like, that means something. That time is important. Lean into it, okay? It's not wasted time. Pray desperately. Give sacrificially. God gives His people wealth in this world for the sake of His worship throughout the world. Why do you have what you have? In part, because somebody has no access to the gospel. We have what we have in part because somebody has no access to the gospel. You have, think about it, you have what you have in part so that somebody right now who has no access, not, not they may not hear the gospel, they have nobody even trying to get the gospel to them. You have resources so that they can have access to what you know and were so freely given. So give sacrificially. Finally, go intentionally. And on this one, yeah, if a short-term opportunity pops up, go. Lord willing, the Lord will raise up some of you, send you out long-term, take your life to another context. For now, for all of us, go intentionally right here. Go where you're at. Don't neglect those things going abroad. Go right here. Basically, live, live here like you would there. Start living here like you want God to send you there. Live with a missionary mindset. The last thing the church needs to do is send people there that aren't already doing it here. Okay? Probably heard there is no transformation by aviation. You don't become a different person on an eight-hour flight or a 12-hour flight or whatever it may be. 
If you desire global impact, praying, giving, and going are the blocking and tackling of that. All right, so much more to be said. Um, take that as either an intro to missions or a needed reminder. Okay, okay. Let me uh, let me crash the plane this way. Um, go ahead and invite up those that are uh, leading us. Um, so go back to the questions we started with. Why do we do all of this? Why all the internal stuff? Why this gathering? Why core training? Why midweek? Why next generation core training? Why home groups? Why everything else? In part, so that we can be distinct from the world as we engage the world. In part, so that we can be equipped to seek the personal good of those around us and pursue local change where God has us and desire global impact where he doesn't currently have us. Here's what I want every member to do. August 13th, right? August 13th is when things really get ramped back up. Okay, that's kind of the day things get back going. You... You can look toward that day right now and in the week to come and you can say, I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to lean into everything that we're doing as a church this fall and this spring. And I'm going to do it in such a way so that people who don't yet know the gospel and don't yet have access to the gospel will know it like that. Showing up to core training, God connects those things. You showing up and just soaking in God's word has an effect On people who have no access to the gospel as we are being faithful. Show up. Get involved. Be committed in such a way that says, I'm going to be light where it doesn't currently shine. I think that perspective, that view will revolutionize everything that we do here. I'm going to close with this quote and then pray for us. I forget who this is from, but I think it... Connects the dots that I may not be connecting right now. I think it connects the dots between all this internal stuff and the mission of God. It says the church is imperfect, messy, maddening, and at times mundane. But she is the body of Christ, the organism God has chosen to physically manifest the son to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. It may not sound exciting. It may seem too predictable and institutional and conventional. It's certainly not going to be comfortable. But committing to your church week after week and giving oneself to the building up of the body is a revolutionary act of mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of this revolutionary act of mission. Help us in all of our lives to lean in for the sake of those who have never heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.